If you have your Bible tonight, I'd love for you to open to Hebrews 8. Praise the Lord. You know, um, before I ever met my wife, Tia, uh, I spoke at her church a few times. I spoke at her church, and then I spoke at uh, a couple conferences in Spokane that, that uh, she was a part of, but I didn't know her at first. And um, so that's not why I went. I just want to lay that down. <laughs> didn't even know her. Uh, but I remember every time, I'd op- every time I'd start, every session I'd start preaching at, the first scripture I'd read, they'd all go, yeah, like they'd all cheer. And I thought, this is odd. They've obviously been really getting into this scripture. And I just stumbled upon it like this is their favorite one. But then the next time they did the same thing until, and I was a little bit slow in figuring this out, I finally figured it out. They do that with the first verse at every service. And that was their way of saying, hey, we're reading the word. That's exciting. And so I thought that was cool. It threw me off for the longest time. But I thought it was cool that there'd be excitement for the word. And we express it in different ways. Uh, but you've got to be excited for the word of the Lord. A few months ago, we talked about that. We, uh, I don't know if you remember, but we talked about the fact that God, in, in the word, there's two things that really pop out when you, and how you treat the word. And they seem like opposites to the world, but they fit perfectly when you know God, when you know Jesus. And that was, and on one sense, it's, it says to tremble at his word. In other words, to see that this is, well, this is big. This is awesome. This is great. Not to take it lightly. But the other side, it says to delight in his word. And, you know, I believe that those are two ways, I mean, two things that you should totally have as you address, as you read the word of God, is that trembling, like this is God's voice, this is God's word, and yet the delight, like this is what really gives me joy, this is what makes me, gives me life, makes me happy, to delight in the word and not just get bored with it, not just get tired of it, but to really delight in his word and his ways and his commandments. Hebrews 8 we uh, went through the book of Hebrews a few years ago, a couple of years ago, I think. And uh, when we did, we went through verse by verse very methodically and really got a lot out of it. Praise God, it was an awesome time. For those of you that were there, you'll recall, and for those that weren't, in the book of Hebrews, all throughout the book of Hebrews, the word better shows up a lot, more perfect. Um, there are phrases that talk about, like, for instance, it starts out talking about how the angels... How great those angels are. How cool they are. But how much better is Jesus? It talks, about, it talks about the earthly high priests that the Israelites had. And it says, but how much better is our high priest? It talked about the old covenant and how good it was. You see, a lot of times we knock the old covenant because we live in the new covenant. But it was good. It was the best thing going at the time. This was God's chosen people. But it says the old covenant was good. The new covenant is new and better. Praise God. So in Hebrews 8, we've stepped in to halfway through the book, in fact, more than halfway, as he begins to expand on how how it's better and why this new covenant is better and why uh, you should forsake anything else and go with this uh, this covenant that Jesus has offered us, that God has offered us through Jesus. Because in the book of Hebrews, there are people addressed that haven't made their choice. They're still clinging to the old, uh, still making their decision and haven't really given themselves over to what God has for them. They're still trying to play both sides of the field. And you know that never really works too well. So he says, uh, towards the end of this chapter, he says, the old is becoming obsolete. It's going away. It's fading away. Here's the new covenant. 
In Hebrews 8, I want to start in verse 6. The first five verses have spoke about the more perfect tabernacle, the fact that Jesus is our high priest. Uh, He's a high priest of things to come. He's a high priest of things in the heavens and the earth. In Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 6, it says this, But now he, being Jesus, has obtained a more excellent ministry, by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted on better promises. Now, when we say it's been enacted, that means those promises are already in effect, right? This isn't just the sweet and by, by and by we're talking about. This is right now. We have better promises that are already in action. They're, they've already been enacted. He says this. He says, for if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. For finding fault with them, he says. So the, the first covenant, it wasn't a flaw in the law. God, God's word is perfect. His law was perfect. The Bible says as much. The flaw was we couldn't live up to it. The flaw was that humans just did not have the ability in their own strength. Pardon with me as I, bear with me as I fix this microphone. See, if we couldn't even keep a microphone straight, how could we keep the whole law? This is just, <laughs> praise God, this thing normally works great. It's a good thing people are listening online, just listening and not watching, right? So, <laughs> praise God. Through all of this, There is a fault, and the fault is not in God's word, but it's with the people themselves. We can't live up to it. But he says, finding fault with him, he says, behold, days are coming. This comes out of the book of Jeremiah. He says, behold, days are coming, says the Lord. Now, how many of you know the days are here? And if you were to read this whole chapter, you'd find out this is the day he's talking about. Days are coming, says the Lord. When I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant. So this something's different about this new and better covenant because you can't be expected to just be better than the Israelites. You can't just be expected to be better human beings. And he's just going to redo. He's going to give you a new law, but it's pretty much the same thing. You're just going to have to try harder this time. That that's not what's different. You'll find out what's different in a minute. He says, they didn't continue in my covenant and I did not care for them. Now, that sounds weird in the New American Standard because we use that that kind of phrase now to mean I didn't love somebody or I didn't think about them. I didn't, oh, I don't care for that kind of food or I didn't care for that music. But that's not what it means. It means because they strayed from the covenant, they strayed out of his care, his protection, his his loving kindness, his fatherness, his fatherhood, what he meant to do for them, what he, how he led them by the hand, how he protected them. They strayed for them, from that. God wanted to care for them. The affection was there. But they wouldn't accept his care. And it says, I did not care for them, says the Lord in verse 10. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. And you say, does that mean me too? Of course it does because you've been adopted in. You were the wild branch, the Bible calls you, that got grafted into the new body. You got, you got adopted into this family. You are now heirs of Abraham, seed of Abraham. And it says, here's my deal with them. After these days, says the Lord, I will put my laws into their mind. And I will write them on their hearts. And I will be their God. 
and they shall be my people. Now listen, when he's talking about this, this isn't his wish for humanity. This isn't his, his theory on how it should go. This is a covenant he's making. Now when God says covenant, that's a serious deal, right? I mean, covenant to him is, a, is an oath. It's, it's sworn. It can't change. The Bible says that when we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. That means he can't break his covenant. He can't break his word. You could, but he can't. So when God says, here's my deal with you, he's not going to go back on this. This is a contract. This is an oath. This is a promise. He says, I will put my laws into their minds and I will write them on their hearts. See, before we just had God's commandments, his ways, and we looked at them from a distance and we tried to understand them. We tried to do our best to follow them. But now he's talking about putting his word, putting his ways, putting his life on the inside of you so that you don't. I mean, yes, we have the, the word of God to follow. But this word of God, when we read it, the spirit gives us light and it goes in here, doesn't it? It doesn't just stay up here. It doesn't just stay in our brains. It goes deep inside. And it says he's promised to put his laws, his ways, his word into your minds and write them on your hearts. It's gone from the external to the internal. He says, and I will be their God. Now, you have to understand how big that is. That's really big because nowadays we just we use the word God so much that it barely means anything. But at, at this point, you've got to think about it. You've got to think what the Israelites came out of. They followed other gods, of course, in the Ten Commandments. One of the main commandments was, you shall have no other god before me. And the deal was, when you worshipped a god, that god was the god that took care of you. Now, of course, we know those other gods were not gods at all, as the scripture says. They believed a lie. It wasn't like there were other gods roaming around. This wasn't like Mount Olympus and Jehovah was like Zeus. There There was nothing like that. They believed the lie. But here's the deal. When he says, I will be your God, it doesn't just mean I'll be the guy you worship at church. It means I will be the one that will care for you. I will be the one that protects you. I will be the one that shelters you. When you made a covenant with someone, that was more than just, hey, we'll be best friends forever. We'll be BFFs and you'll always be my top friends list. That's not what we're talking about. And we'll give each other little lockets that have half a heart on one side and half a heart on the other side. That's not what God's promised you. God, uh, God's love for you did not extend to warm fuzzies that made him put your picture on his refrigerator. There was so much more than this. And for him to say, I will be your God, you will be my people. What we're talking about is a real covenant where you said, if you made a covenant with somebody like this, my Enemies are your enemies. My possessions are your possessions. What I have, you have. What you have, I have. That we're making a real deal here. And he says, I will be your God. I'll be the one that cares for you. You will be my people, my possession. You'll never be neglected. You'll never be not cared for. And they shall be my. Verse 11 says this, and they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen. What does that mean? Fellow citizen. That's not citizen of Canada. That's not citizen of Lloydminster. That's not citizen of the world. That's citizen of heaven. 
This means you and I are fellow citizens of the kingdom of God. This is not talking about everybody. It's talking about citizens. They shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen and everyone his brother, saying. So listen, citizens, brothers. We're talking about the kingdom people here. He says, you won't teach them, saying, know the Lord. For all will know me. From the least to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their iniquities. Now listen, the first 12 starts with four. He says, all will know me for, or in other words, because. It's not just that all will know me because, you know, I've got more hype now. I've got a better marketing department. He says, all will know me because I will remember their sins no more. Which means that our sins were the very thing that were keeping us from knowing the Lord. From really getting close to him. And I've said this probably a hundred times, but the entire message of the Old and the New Testament seems to be loudly saying, come closer, draw near. And all of those sacrifices and all those rituals in the Old Covenant were to make a way so that they could draw near. If only temporary uh, covering something, at least they could draw near. And now Jesus Christ, being our high priest, says, draw near. And he says, all will know me. From the least to the greatest, for I will remember, I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. When the Bible says that God was in Christ Jesus reconciling the world to himself, bringing the world back to his arms, bringing them back together, that's serious stuff. We understand that this covenant is not just a covenant that changes your behavior. It changes your relationship with Jesus. Change your relationship with God. We who were far off, the Bible says, have now been brought near. What a great statement. We who were far off have been brought near. The covenant that God made with you is not a covenant of mutual obedience. It's not a covenant of mutual friendship. It's a covenant of close relationship that God brought us near through the blood of Jesus right up to him. So you have to say, I mean, as somebody who who has real flaws and is not perfect, it's an amazing thought that they would say, I would know the Lord, not just know about him, not just be taught of him, but to really know him. And to really know somebody, you have to spend time with them. Right? So we always say that so that you would spend more time with Jesus. But isn't it amazing that Jesus would spend time with you? That God would spend time with you? Do you realize that God would not spend time with you if you just, I mean, in the old covenant, if you were continually just drenched in your own stupidity and sin, that was a definite separation. It disabled relationship. It broke relationship. But Jesus restored relationship. I always think of this. I think of later in Hebrews, it talks about the old. In fact, the next chapter, it talks about the difference between the old covenant sacrifices and the new covenant, specifically in the tabernacle that the Israelites had as they went through the wilderness. And it's amazing to think. It says once a year, one man, Once a year, one guy gets to go into the presence of God. Now, I mean, the presence of God was at different places, different times. I'm talking about the Holy of Holies, like where the Ark of the Covenant was, the mercy seat. One guy, once a year. 
And there were so many separations. There was a, a certain spot you could go to if you were Gentile and you have to stop. Then if you were Israelites, there was a certain spot and you had to stop. Then there was a certain spot you could go if you were Levites and priests. Then you had to stop. Then one man could go through that last door. But only once a year. Can you imagine the rest of the year waiting for that one day? Can you imagine being the people on the outside looking in saying, Oh, I wish I was that guy. I wish I could go in there. Now he says, Come on anytime. Come in anytime. Now isn't it weird that we'd rather play Nintendo? And you guys are mostly like adults here. I use that as a light example. Isn't it odd that we'd rather watch TV sometimes than come to the presence of God? Can you imagine coming back to that spot and, and getting stuck outside the tabernacle and going, oh, I wish I could be in there. And then, and then seeing the high priest who could go in, just go, yeah, I don't really feel like it. I got other things going on. Isn't it wonderful that we get to go in anytime? Nothing else is worth it. I'm not saying you can't do anything else, but, but this is the big deal. But here's the deal. When he talks about this, we seem to be talking about, he says, you'll know the Lord. You'll spend time with him. My words will be in you. You'll be my people. I'll be your God. It's speaking of a restored relationship, maybe like the one that was in the garden. You know, there's no verse in the Bible that says that Adam walked with God in the cool of the day. We've kind of inferred that from a scripture that says that when God was walking in the cool or the breeze, Adam was hiding. But we can assume that that, that, that was not an unusual thing. Because it doesn't say that God just, you know, made a surprise visit and never visits. There definitely seemed to be a relationship there. So we can assume and know this. This is an assumption. The Bible doesn't say this. But I would assume at least that that meant that every other day before Adam sinned, God would walk in the cool of the day and be in the same garden as them and talk with them. God picked out his wife. Isn't that cool? God cared enough, he set him up with a girl. Well, he kind of made the girl too, but that's, that's like next level matchmaker right there. You guys can't come close to that, nor should you try. <laughs> that's right, that is the way it should be. God should be your matchmaker. Praise God. But anyways, so God walks with Adam. We're assuming that this wasn't the first time he walked in the cool of the day, that he had a regular relationship with Adam, that that was part of the covenant. Part of the covenant is not just your rights. Part of the covenant is not just heaven. A big part of the covenant is a relationship with God. Is like a real relationship, like a friendship. Is that a word we can use? Because Jesus said, I'm not going to call you slaves anymore. I'm going to call you my friends. And he says, the difference is a slave doesn't know what his master is doing. So what can we infer from that? That he's saying, my friend knows what I'm doing. Yes. He says, you're my friend if you keep my word. Yes. Praise God. I want you to go back to Hebrews 4 for a minute. I'm not going to keep you long tonight, but I do want this to sink in. Think about this. So God had a relationship with Adam. Now, we could think, well, until the new covenant, he didn't have that relationship with anybody again. But that's not quite true. There were people that believed in him. And though they were flawed, and though they were broken, they believed. And God counted their faith. He says this about Abraham. 
God counted his faith and credited to him as righteousness. You look at the relationship that God had with Abraham. If you ever really read some of those stories. In fact, why don't we just turn it? Just can we can you humor me? Let's go to Genesis for a moment. Hold your place in Hebrews chapter four, would you? Genesis chapter 17. There's this really, so we, you know, God came down in the breeze of the day, the wind of the day, the cool of the day in uh, the garden. But in this, this chapter, God comes down in the heat of the day. So, you know, God has different times of day he comes down in, right? So don't base theology or doctrine on this is the time you should pray. It's too hot to pray. No, God, God come down at any time, right? I joke, but I'm sure somebody has said that at some point. I've been a Christian long enough that I know people can make a mountain out of a molehill if they wanted to. Genesis chapter 17. God comes down and he brings his posse with him. He brings some angels. And he speaks to Abraham. And the reason he's come down is because he's going to make Abraham a real promise about Isaac. He's going to speak to him about Isaac. Now, we know that God has already promised him a son before this, but he reaffirms it and says it out loud, says it to his face, and makes sure that Sarah can hear. They come down, and he finishes talking to him. He, he speaks about it, and, and of course, when he comes in, I'm sorry I said 17, I meant verse 18. I apologize. Abraham actually asks him, he says, please, Don't pass your servant by. Let me wash your feet, rest. Let me get you something to drink, give you hospitality. But then something happens. He tells him the promise and then he sends his buddies. He sends these angels, not just his buddies, sorry, they're his servants. He sends them on to Sodom. The reason being is that the wages of sin is death. And the sin in Sodom and Gomorrah was so great that in order to protect civilization, in order to protect the rest of the world, he had to do something about it. Thank God we live under a new covenant. But he looks to Sodom and his angels go on ahead of him. And as you know, when they got there, they didn't, uh, didn't come upon very good hospitality. They had some real issues when they got there. But that's not what we're going to read about for the moment. In verse 16, then the men rose up from there and looked down towards Sodom. And Abraham was walking with them to send them off. And the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Since Abraham will surely become a great and mighty nation. And in him, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. For I have chosen him so that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring about in Abraham what he has spoken about him. And the Lord said, so here's the Lord answering that question. He's going to tell Abraham. He says, I can't hide this from Abraham. Now you understand that he's God. He has the right to hide something. But he says, since I've made a covenant with Abraham. Now he made a real covenant with Abraham just a little bit earlier here. And now that he's in covenant with Abraham, he says, I'm not going to hide anything. From, I'm not going to hide this from him. I could, but I won't. This is my friend. 
This is my covenant son, my covenant servant, my covenant partner. He says, the outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great and their sin is exceedingly grave. That means it's serious. I will go down now and see if they've done entirely according to its outcry, which has come to me. And if not, I will know. Then the men turned away from there and went towards Sodom while Abraham was still standing before the Lord. Abraham came near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you indeed sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous and the wicked are treated alike. Far be it from you. And if you were there, I'd imagine you're saying, Abraham, dude, you're talking to God here. Chill a little bit. Because he's like, far be it from you. That's intense. Not for us, because we don't use that kind of phrase. But he's telling God what he can do or should do. But there's a reason for this. It's because Abraham had spent enough time with God that he knew God. He knew that wasn't like God. And in fact, even though, if you were to read ahead, even though God wiped out Sodom and Gomorrah, he did not wipe the righteous out with the wicked, took them out of the city. But look, he says, far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? Verse 26. So the Lord said, if I find in Sodom 50 righteous within the city, then I will spare the whole place on their account. And Abraham replied. See, Abraham is a Middle Eastern tradesman. He knows how to barter. He's, I mean, you know how it is in North America. We pay the price tag. We go anywhere else in the world. It's about bartering. It's about negotiation. So Abraham's like, okay, I got him down. He goes, okay, here's the deal. Um, I have ventured to speak to the Lord, although I am but dust and ashes. Throw that in there. So God doesn't go, you've stepped too far. Suppose the 50 righteous are lacking five. So you got 45. Just so everybody's on the same page mathematically. Will you destroy the whole city because of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. He spoke of it to him yet again and saying, because listen, They're going through this, but both of them know there aren't that many righteous people in that city. Isn't that amazing? No wonder God had to do something if there weren't this many righteous people in that big city. So Abraham knows there's not 45. That's why he has to keep going down. He had to start at 50 because it was a nice round number, but (laughs) there's not 50. So he says, what about 45? God says, no. He says, what about 40? God says, okay, I won't do it on the account of the 40. He says, um... Oh, may the Lord not be angry, and I shall speak. Suppose 30 are found there. And he said, okay, I won't do it if I find 30 there. And he said, now behold, I have ventured to speak to the Lord. Like I've gone this far. Why stop now? Um, what about 30? And he said, I will not do it if I find 30 there. And he said, I've, I've ventured, I'm sorry, I skipped back. I ventured to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. And he said, I will not destroy it on account of the 20. Then he said, oh, may the Lord not be angry. And I shall speak only this once. Suppose 10 are found there. And he said, I will not destroy it on account of the 10. Now, Abraham stops here because I'm, I'm sensing he realizes I've pushed it. I've pushed it a bit too far here. <laughs> because, you know, God has made a covenant with you and he calls you friend. And yet that covenant does still say, I will be their God. They will be my people. 
So while we have rights and while he treats us as friends, we still got to understand he's God, right? Even Jesus, Jesus had the best relationship you'd ever could watch. Every, you ever could, could ever examine, he had that relationship with the Father. And what did he say? Not my will, but yours be done. He says, I don't do anything on my own initiative. I do what he tells me to do. The best life you could possibly live is a life that says, you're calling the shots. Whatever you say, that's what I'm going to do. So Abraham negotiates with God here, but he knows that, that God has given him such favor, not because of what he's done, but because of his faith. And his faith led to what he had done. He left his home. Later on, he would offer up his son. See, his faith was not alone, but it was faith with corresponding obedience. But because of that faith, he has this relationship with God. That God says, I won't destroy a city without telling my covenant partner here, my friend. And then he says, I'll actually negotiate with you. You ask for that. Now, you see, who knows if Abraham had asked for more, would God have gone down lower? I think they both know if it's below 10, probably a reason for it to be destroyed. But God is merciful. He goes in and finds Lot, who is surely not blameless, probably has some real issues, is surely not perfectly righteous because Lot was one of the city elders. He was one of the guys that was in leadership there. And something's broken. If they haven't killed you or you haven't changed them, and it's this messed up. Lot had most likely compromised severely. In fact, so much so that when the mob comes to his house, they expect him to turn over his guests so that they can be raped. And when he doesn't turn over his guests, he turns over his daughter instead. Something's broken. But because of his relationship with Abraham, God takes all of Abraham's relatives out of that city, marches them out and saves their lives. Now this sounds like a really good friendship that was built on covenant. Who are we that God would be conversing with us? But God counted his faith as righteousness. Noah, before, before Abraham there was Noah. The Bible says Noah was in a land of sinful people. He was, I mean, the world was just messed up, but it says Noah was blameless. Does anybody here believe that Noah never sinned? Of course he sent. And yet God saw him as blameless. There was something about his faith that, that God counted as righteousness. Even before Jesus, the Bible says, Jesus said that Abraham looked forward, saw his day and rejoiced. That they didn't know it, but they were grabbing on to something, some, some redemption that was to come. So much so that, that God preserved them from hell, even though they weren't perfect, even though they had flaws. He kept them in the bosom of Abraham. And the Bible says in Hebrews 12 that when we got to Mount Sinai, we found the spirit of the righteous made perfect. That means they were righteous because they believed God, but they were made perfect by the blood of Jesus and made completely righteous. Moses, in fact, look, look, at, look with me real quick, Exodus 33. I didn't go, I'm intend to go through all this, but just to show you, even in the old covenant, the friendships that God had, the relationship he had, that this is what he really longed for, is people like this. God did not, God was not seeking people he could beat up and boss around. 
God was seeking people that he could have a relationship with. Yes, that would be obedient to his voice because, hey, he knows a lot more than we do. He was looking for people that were obedient and follow his word and listen to his commands. But he was looking to those people that would trust him and love him, obey him and walk with him. Because that's one of the things he said about Noah. Noah was blameless and he walked with God. He walked with God. Enoch got so close to God. It says he walked with God and God took him away so he wouldn't taste death. Isn't that amazing? Don't you think this is what God is looking for? Don't you think this is what God was restoring through Jesus Christ? Through the cross and the resurrection. Restoring humanity to a place where we have the right to talk to him like a friend. To talk to him like a father. Yes, he is our God. Yes, he is our king. Yes, he is our master. And yet, to speak to him openly. Because guys, even Queen Esther. Do you remember the dude she was married to? If you read some other stuff about him, if he's the guy that history tells us he is. This guy was crazy enough that he tried to build a bridge across to Greece to invade. And when a storm washed it away, do you know what he did? He had everybody that built the bridge beheaded. Then he had big old giant whips. Do you know what he's going to do with the giant whips? He's going to whip the river hundreds of times. And put fetters on it. Put chains on the river. I own you now. Don't destroy my bridge. Now is that a guy you want to be married to? Not only is he cuckoo. He's angry cuckoo. If you're going to be married to a cuckoo guy. Be married to a happy cuckoo guy. (laughs) He's a mad cuckoo man. He's mad both in, in both senses of the word. And so Esther has an order. She's the wife. He picked her out. He really likes her. And yet she can't even come into his presence unless he calls her. And when she does, she has to say, Oh, can you live forever? If I found favor in your sight, can I make you a peanut butter and jelly sandwich? I mean, like she had to, she had to just grovel in front of her husband. Now that's an earthly guy. We serve the almighty living God, unapproachable light. And he says, come in freely walk with me talk with me wow exodus 33 it says in verse 7 now moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp a good distance from the camp and he called it the tent of meeting so it just seems like moses set up a tent and says hey god why don't you meet me here and maybe God, maybe it was God's idea, we don't know. But he called it the tent of meeting, and everyone who sought the Lord would go to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. So this wasn't just Moses. This was everybody that wanted to could come to this tent and meet with God. And it came about whenever Moses went out to the tent that all the people would arise and stand, each at the entrance of his tent, and gaze after Moses until he entered the tent. Because something different happened when Moses went. Something happened when Moses went that didn't happen when everybody else went. And when Moses would get, I can imagine being in this camp, imagine being one of these people. When Moses goes to that tent, everybody comes out, stands up. If you're sitting at the campfire, you stood up. And they stand at the entrance of the tent and they watch him go. It says, and the Lord would speak with Moses. 
Not just to, with. And you see the same thing that happened with Abraham, you see the same thing happened with Moses. God was going to wipe the people out. Moses negotiated with God. You don't get that right just by being born. Verse 10. When the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would arise and worship, each at the entrance of his tent. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face, just as a man speaks to his friend. This was the verse that inspired us to name our child Moses. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face, as a man speaks to his friend. And when Moses would leave, Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. Isn't that awesome? Even though Moses went in there and God was there to meet with Moses, Joshua got to tag along. And God's not like, I'll talk to you alone when he leaves. But Joshua could just stand there. And I imagine he was smart enough not to say a word and just stand there and sit in the presence of God. And when Moses would leave, Joshua stayed, which tells me that God stayed. And he was ready to lead the people. You remember, who would come up with the crazy idea there's a big city. How are we going to defeat it? Let's march around it a bunch of times and then yell. Right? That's not out of Patton's handbook. Remember how it happened? God showed up. Talked to him face to face. And Joshua didn't act. Now listen, I'm not telling you you should act real cavalier with God and just be like, hey dude, what's up, homeboy? But, you know, because even Joshua was like, whoa, and he got down on his face. But then the Lord says, get up. Gives him the whole plan of how to take Jericho. Tells him every step. And when the Israelites were going to take Ai and there was sin in the camp and Joshua didn't know why they, he didn't know about the sin, so he didn't know why they failed. God meets with him face to face and says, here's what's wrong. See, this is what God was looking for. This is what God restored, not just, you see, because all of this, we're talking about outliers. We're talking about single individuals amongst generations that have this relationship. And now in the new covenant, we have the opportunity, all of us. He says, you won't tell each other, know the Lord, for all will know me. That's huge. That Jesus has placed us on a on a, on a on an area, on a platform where we can actually come to him and say something and not be afraid that we're going to die. Hebrews chapter 4. My view of this verse has changed in the past week. That's cool, huh? Maybe that's not cool, I don't know. Brother Dennis was preaching and he mentioned this verse just in passing on Sunday night in Loon Lake. And, and I have an app on my iPad that I love, that i reading the Bible and I got a couple translations like this. And then I can just hit a word and find, and it comes up with the original Greek or the original Hebrew. And there's another one that kind of really goes in depth. And uh, I've always viewed it this way. Let me read it to you and then I'll tell you how I used to read it. He says in verse 14, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens... Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, because of him, 
Let us draw near. Let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now, the way I've always read this is when I thought, pictured confident, I pictured the way I walked in. In fact, I thought of the word confident in English. It comes from two Latin words, with faith. And I always pictured that it was with faith, confidently, that I didn't grovel, that I walked straight up and I walked into his throne room until I looked at the original word. This isn't talking about how you walk. It's not talking about how you carry yourself. It's from two words, one which means everything or all and one which means to speak. And this word is used to talk about speaking boldly, freedom of speech, being able to say anything you want to say. That when they used it in the book of Acts, they talked about how the the apostles spoke boldly. They didn't pull any punches. They just said what God told them to say. They just spoke freely. This is the word that he says when we come confidently. You can't separate this word from what you say. It's a speech word. So that means it's not just me walking boldly. It's me saying something. It's me feeling free that I can speak to God. That I can bring things up to Him. That I can ask for things. And I won't get smacked for doing it. That I can come into His presence and speak freely. Do you remember what Jesus said? Because of me. Because of my relationship with God. And because you're going to be in me and I in you. Ask anything in my name. And it will be done to you by my Father who is in heaven. Ask anything. I love the verse, I love the chapter, Ezekiel 36, that talks about all these things that have gone wrong with Israel, all the things that they busted, that they wrecked. But God says, here's what I want to do. I want to restore them. I want to build them again. He sa- and he, he dreams big. He says, I want to make their, their ruined cities like Eden. I want to I do this and I want to do that. And I want to take the reproach away from their name. I want to restore all these things. And he says, these things I will let them ask me for. I'll let them ask. Now this is what God wants for you. I'm not telling you, you go and tell God your will. No, 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 no. Because anyone who knows God and spends any degree of time with Him becomes conformed to His will. But I'm talking about a relationship with God that you can go freely in and speak face to face with Him because of Jesus. That this is what actually God desires. He desires a relationship where He says, I have adopted you as sons. And he says that we've received the adoption of sons. And, and more than once in the New Testament, it uses the phrase in which we cry out, Abba, Father, Abba. The, the word, Hebrew word Ab meant father, but Abba was like daddy. It was, it was intimate. It was, it was something that was only close, like a little child calling out to his dad. And that's how you address the king. That's how you address the God of all creation. If you went... And to see Queen Elizabeth, would you say, hey, chick, what's up? (laughs) Hey, mama. Would you do that? Bad idea. I don't even think her son talks like that to her. In fact, I'm pretty sure he doesn't. (laughs) You got to know, I had great parents, and I always felt like I could talk to my dad. And I could talk to my mom very freely. You know, my father came from a different type of family and mom came from a different type of family. And when 
we talked about someday having kids. We said, well, what are they going to call you? And my mom said, Mimi. Of course, I, I, it took me a while to adjust to that because I had an image of a character from a TV show that was called Mimi, and it <laughs> wasn't good. And you know what? Thank God that moved out of my mind. I'm good now. Now I've just put it in your mind. But my dad came from, as he would describe it, a poor family who acted like a rich family. Uh, in the, I mean, they're like dirt poor southern hillbillies who considered them southern aristocrats. And uh, not hillbillies. They certainly weren't hillbillies. But, you know, they, I mean, they, they like to think of themselves as the southern gentry folk. And, you know, they, they didn't have much at all. But... Um, so they had a different, a different way of looking at it. And my dad would say, i say, well, mom says Mimi, what do you say? And he goes, you know, I used to call my great-grandfather Grandsir. I've always liked that. And I just pictured my child saying, hi, Mimi, hi, Grandsir, you know. <laughs> How they didn't seem to go together too well. <laughs> it's Mimi and Grandsir. Just, you know. And at the same time, that's the relationship we kind of have with God. There's, there's a reverence, there's an awe, there's a respect that he is the king. And we stand in awe of him, we bow low at his feet and say, holy. But at the same time, there's an intimacy that we say, daddy, father. That's okay to it sometimes not know, is it okay to feel both? Yes, it is. Because God wants intimacy with you. Jesus died to give us that relationship that we would come into his presence often and boldly and speak freely. You have to know that the reason you do that is not because God is just more chill than he used to be. That God is mellowed in his old age because he doesn't age. The reason you can do that is because you do stand. He said, I will be merciful and I will remember their sins no more. The reason you can is because you have been clean. The reason you can is because you stand before him righteous and perfect. And you're perfect because of what Jesus did. Could he call you blameless as he called Noah blameless, as he called Abraham, as he called Enoch? Absolutely, because of what Jesus did. Take advantage of that. I want to get this just, we're about to close, but I want to make this very practical to you. Take advantage of this and know who you are. Look in the scripture and study out who am I to God? How do I speak to him? Because I think you'll be surprised at how he treats you. Not as just merely as a slave. Although every, every writer of the epistles in the New Testament at some point calls himself a slave to Christ, but they made themselves that. God doesn't treat you like a slave. Even though you make yourself a slave, he doesn't treat you like one. How should I speak to him when I go to him in prayer? That's very practical, isn't it? Many of us waste like, waste like an hour trying to say, you know, trying to be so grovelly that maybe we won't sound arrogant if we ask. But he says, ask and you will receive and your joy will be made full. And Jesus said this, don't be like the Pharisees who think they're going to be heard because of their piety and because of their fancy words. And don't be like the Gentiles who think they're going to be heard because they used a lot of words. Just come to him and understand that I've been given the right to speak freely, to ask freely, and yes, to speak face to face with God. Would you rather do anything else?